Have you ever wondered how you could know God exists? Not just whether God exists, but how you could even know that. Once you start asking that question, the next question's how how would you even know that anything exists? Have you ever wondered how you can be sure how anything exists outside your thoughts? Well, those were questions that Esther Meek asked herself when she was 13 years old. And they those questions tormented her because they seemed so big and so important. Now, to make matters worse, uh, Esther was actually in a Christian family and she thought those questions were sinful. So she didn't tell anybody about them. Her life has been finding a pathway to answering those questions. And in this interview, that's what she talks about, the journey from the 13-year-old asking those questions to finding not just the answers to those questions, but the way to answer those questions. Now, that's in technical terms, epistemology. And it it can sound like um, intimidating philosophy. But one of the points that Esther makes is that everybody's a philosopher by virtue of being born because we all ask ourselves big questions. We just can't generally frame them and don't have a structured way of studying them. The journey that Esther's been on has been the journey of studying philosophy, but not in the way that many people study it. She's really become a thought leader who has crafted a alternative epistemology that's really important for the modern world. It's important for the modern world because the modern world is corrupted by scientism. She says we're all baby Cartesians, quote, which means that we've all been influenced by the post-enlightenment world of Descartes, which is objectified reality. She thinks that's an utterly false assumption. And one of the pillars she's built her thinking on is the great 20th century philosopher-scientist Michael Palenyi, who, a great scientist, friend of Einstein, who actually came forward with the phenomenal proposition that that isn't even how science works. Actually, all knowledge is personal. And one of Polanyi's great books is called Personal Knowledge. So that's the world that Esther takes us through in this pretty short discussion. It's a discussion. Um, it's a dialogue. I ask her questions. Um, it's not just theoretical because I ask her to tell us her story, her life story. And she does it with a lot of humility and a lot of, um, a lot of passion. She, she, she says her calling in life is to, is, to, is to make this accessible for ordinary people like you and I, and because she feels that she's one of those people. I think what Esther has to say to the modern world is utterly important and vital. And this is a great um, door opener to her world. And I trust you enjoy it. 
Yeah, so, okay. Well, we, we, we've started, Esther, welcome to uh, the Gospel Conversations uh, world. Um, Thank you. We're, we're looking forward to hearing you next year. I'm looking forward to meeting you and talking with you next year. Uh, as you know, Gospel Conversations is a uh, inquiry-based podcast that really is looking at faith, but in in a, in a very holistic framework. And as such, we are we have a strong philosophical substrate. I would put, using the word philosophical um, in its more generic. Um, more, more generic meaning of inquiry, reflection, asking the big questions, and probably something else uh, which I'll mention, uh, might mention later on. I've been reading um, Bonhoeffer of, a bit of late. I don't know if you have read much Bonhoeffer, but his famous letters. No, but read about him. <laughs> yeah, his letters. Uh, his letters from prison. Uh, yeah. Are, are um, famous and um, famous because they're so radical and uncomfortable. And he started talking about a religionless Christianity and a religionless God. Um, uh, you know, in other words, not quarantining God into a small little box called religion. That's to do with certain rituals of life like forgiveness and church, but actually the whole of life. And what I like about that idea of philosophy, it's actually, it's not actually a religious domain. It is the most human domain. It's probably, and, and so we're, we're very um, keen to welcome you, somebody who's made that domain your life <laughs> into our world. But so what, what I wanted to begin with was your story. Mm. And um, because I think your story is very important because it does explain how this is not a profession for you. This is a, a vocation and this you, you did philosophy, you know, to get your own mind in order and, and probably still keep doing it. <laughs> yes, it's continually needed. <laughs> so could you just... Uh, really rehearse for us how you began it you know really it began in your childhood the questions you were asking yourself in a christian family and where sure. that led you yeah well um i uh, was born into a bible believing family and um uh learned a lot of bible and uh found myself around age 13 with some questions that i felt must be sin um, so I didn't tell anybody, but one was, how do I know that God exists? And the other was, how do I know there's a world outside my mind? <laughs> and, um, I know they also sounded crazy, which was another reason I didn't, uh, mention them to anyone. Uh, but it just seemed to me about both of those, even though I, you know, I, somehow the idea that the, that the Bible, uh, said, that the Bible should be believed about God left me with the question, left me with a question about knowing. And then uh, this 
image that I had also of somehow I had this idea that I w was only certain of the ideas in my head. And precisely because of the ideas in my head, those ideas blocked me from, the, from proof that the world was actually there. So uh, that, I, it just seemed to me that I had no proof and those were like the most important things. So it um, uh, took me a, a few years to um, make some headway on that because, and the way I did was that my mother was working in a Christian bookstore and was an avid reader and brought home all the new books. And that included the work of Francis Schaeffer. And um, so in high school, I followed her red pencil underlining through the God who is there which is no mean feat. <laughs> and um, really where I realized that my questions were not sin, they were philosophical, and that responses to them had shaped whole cultural epochs across the disciplines, that fired my imagination for things interdisciplinary. That just seemed like it opened the world to me. And, uh, uh, you know, and so that I thought was a, a, a next step. But I didn't know you could study philosophy. And so um, I went off to college in chemistry. But it was the next year that I heard uh, a student of this philosophy professor at a different college raving about what he was learning in philosophy class. And um, he and I talked for three hours. And uh, after that, it took me 12 hours to make up my mind <laughs> that um, I needed to uh, change colleges, change majors, sight on scene, go study with this man. And it seemed to me, like in that 10 hours, that it was just evident that these were the most important questions. And even though I was sure I was not brilliant enough to do this, I was morally obligated to uh, pursue these because they were the most they were the most important questions so off I went and I haven't looked back <laughs> so that's, I was 20, 20 I think I was 20 <laughs> 19 that, maybe I was 19 <laughs> that was a very sudden move to change colleges you're not even moving within the site and I presume that meant changing cities did it Oh, and states. I went to Flatland, Ohio, which I, as we were driving out there, I thought, my gosh, what have I done? This looks terrible. <laughs> so it, it was quite something. And then I didn't study with that man until the spring. And then I took every course he taught, and then he made me his grader and built me a desk in his office, and I graded all his essays, including my own. <laughs> so that was my start. His name was Jim Greer, or James Montgomery Greer. He's passed to glory, but you know, as many today uh, are, he has a website. You can listen to his sermons. <laughs> so um, anyway, Jim Greer. So he was worth going to listen to. Oh my goodness, he was he was unbelievable, and he had this high moral sense. And uh, I got all my undergraduate philosophy from him, and he had studied at Westminster Seminary, and so I was getting it all in a reformational perspective. And um, uh, that actually proved to resonate pretty deeply with my own past because my church in Philadelphia had. Uh, been connected with the English Calvinists. Uh, 
So um, I learned Spurgeon's Catechism and, you know, just from my mother and, and things like that. So uh, once I got straight on how to kind of make the transition from dispensationalism to Reformation, a um, Reformational approach, I felt the, the um, resonance uh, between those two, and it seemed it seemed just fine to me. So yeah, then that that led me on to uh, pursue uh, philosophy. I when I got done at at Cedarville, I felt like um, well, I, I have a, a self doubt has been has reigned in my life. So I had pretty little sense that uh, I might be called to something. But I thought if I was called to anything, it was to um, help people who hadn't ever uh, gotten their feet wet in philosophy to do so because I felt like philosophy revitalized my faith. I, for a while, I said, you know, I, I knew what the answers were, but I, I hadn't known what the questions were. <laughs> you know, it really helped to find out, to find out. And, and uh, I have to say, you know, the older I get, the, the more excited I get about uh, the philosophy the profound philosophical riches of, of the Christian belief. So uh, now in, in this uh, point of my life, I feel like my philosophizing and my love of God have just melded. <laughs> That's wonderful. There's two, two things you've said I'd just like to draw attention to. You, you use the word interdisciplinary in passing. I think that's quite important because... I think your, your interest in philosophy was not some kind of deep dive specialization um, into, say, analytic philosophy. It, you actually were much more interested in this broad, really liberal arts mind that would, that would course across, uh, at, at a meta level, across many different areas. Would you like to just comment on that? Well, and I, I have to say, I've always loved science and I've always loved art. And, um, of course, you'd want to put those together, <laughs> you know, so, so I, you know, every chance I got to write some kind of thesis, it was usually on something to do with art. But when I chose uh, the philosopher to study in my um, PhD work, he, he was a scientist turned philosopher. And uh, I, lo I just, I've loved, I, I love the idea of discovery that just, that, I can't get more excited than I already am about finding out new things. And so discovery intrigues me. Well, the other thing you said, which I wanted to draw attention to that I, I agree and think is important is that you've, you, you, I mean, you felt, you've never felt, uh, you, you talked about self-doubt. Um, yeah. but, but what that's given you, I suspect is a desire to, make this available for ordinary people, whereas philosophy yeah. is generally, in, uh, it's, it's sort of inaccessible. Yeah, I'm passionate about that. I feel that I have not done my job if I can't uh, say what, why it matters, say, say it to, to anybody and say why it matters. And it just, it just seems to me that... Uh, I think there's one thing that you need to be philosophical and that's to be born. And so that means our birthright as humans is to be philosophical, but we live in an age that has philosophizing 
as impractical. And so uh, we, modernity is depriving us of our birthright. And so I'm fighting upstream on this, but, but um, I, my job is to express philosophy in a way that uh, works for, that communicates to ordinary people. I, I think it shouldn't just be the rock musicians that do philosophy in the streets. I want to do it too. Good. So that's great. And I think you're doing a great job. So let's keep going with your story. I, so I'm, I mean, that's like, that's what I have to do. I have to do that. Yeah. And, um, and you're, you, there may be some connection to the self-doubt, you know, my kind of my lowly sense, I'm just an ordinary person. I got, but I got to figure this out because it's so, so important. Yeah. And I, I actually think, uh, my, my career has taken me on a similar path. I mean, I actually began, so, so cross-functional thinking, but working in areas such as science and technology and business that I didn't know a lot about. And those are areas that are dominated by ego and part of the, and, and, and as a result, they're scary um, places. And the, the, mechanism, the mechanism for people there, I found out, the mechanism for them uh, protecting themselves was language that was specialist and inaccessible. And, yeah. that, 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 yeah. and, and the code behind the language was, I'm smarter than you are, don't ask me too many questions. Yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but if you did ask the questions, what happened is you you released authenticity. So and 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 therefore, and the questions were often quite simple. The simpler that they were, yeah. the harder they were to answer, and the better the answers got. So yeah, we have a simple. Well, and them. you have to realize uh, those those two questions have really shaped my whole quest, mm. and. Um, and my writing, I, I have a cycle of books that I feel that finally, with this cycle of four books, I've, I've gotten to the place where I feel that I've responsibly dealt with my questions. And when I finished that last book, Contact with Reality, when I was writing the draft, I made sure that the last word was beginning <laughs> because I felt like I was finally ready to start. <laughs> but, you know, it's been a quest for reality. And, you know, my questions were no about knowing. And I, 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 I've worked through knowing with regard to knowing God and with regard to knowing anything at all. And I, and I finally feel that I have the confidence to launch out to think, to think now about what reality is like. And I'm just immersing myself in that it's kind of like going swimming in the ocean not a pool <laughs> but we, we'll yeah. get we'll get around to that in a moment and and obviously when we uh, hopefully can bring you out next year you can develop that more fully but i wanted to just finish your story because i was intrigued when we first talked and met you talked about uh, even after you'd done your PhD, you didn't quite have crystallised the, yeah. the, the what you call the put-it-together moment, which I think came more when you were teaching. Um, you were crystallising perhaps a curriculum or something for your students. Can you talk a little bit about the put-it-together moment that began to give you the, 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 the sort of crystal from which you developed, ah, this is the beginning of the answer to these questions? Yeah, so... Um if I, if I can fill in a little bit of the story before that, uh, what I loved about this philosopher, Michael Polanyi, 
uh, in particular was throughout his work, famous work being personal knowledge, which was her, his uh, Gifford lectures, uh, he would uh, kind of make this aside and say, you know you've made contact with reality when you have a sense of the possibility of indeterminate future manifestations or something to that effect. Unspecifiable, you can't name them, their future there's no way you could document them. And it's actually at the point of discovery, that's what confirms or gives you hope of confirmation. It's not evidence because you have no evidence <laughs> at that moment. And, and but what you've got is this unspecifiable sense of indeterminate future manifestations. Well, that line was the water of life to me. It was like the first time that anybody had said anything that had anything to do with my quirky 13-year-old question, which is how do I know I've made contact with reality, right? And so that's what I did my dissertation on, uh, which now has been published as Contact with Reality. And um, I, I did that. I did, I did that dissertation in a heavily analytic department uh, with a bunch of uh, people on my uh, examining committee that had no idea what I was talking about. And I, I, I don't know how I got through that, except that uh, they had had as a visiting professor at that department, the great Marjorie Green. <laughs> and everybody lived in fear of her. <laughs> so I think that might have had something to, to do with it. But you explain who Mar just a quick aside for people. Uh, first of all, a a quick who Michael Polanyi was, and then a quick who Marjorie Green was. Okay, Michael Polanyi was a Hungarian scientist uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, brilliant uh, in conversation with Einstein and other greats, and a physical chemist, uh, the kind of, of scientist who over the years, people, universities would like, give him a lab and set him up and people would come from all over the world to apprentice with him and multiple Nobel Prize winners came out of his lab which is rare um, but he uh, always had greater uh, questions partly because he was a Jew in Europe in, in the early 20th century uh, but you know about how science works but but uh, just wider interdisciplinary philosophical questions. And, and in particular, what he wanted to say was, uh, you can't be objectivist. <laughs> First of all, it's gonna destroy Europe. But second of all, uh, if, if knowledge happens and discovery happens the way objectivism says, no scientific discovery could ever happen. But it does. So fix your epistemology. So then personal knowledge was his proposals, his fresh and innovative proposals about how we know. Now, Marjorie Green uh, was the philosopher that's, that Polanyi never was, uh, although because she was a woman, once she got her PhD, they told her to go home and keep house. <laughs> but uh, so she signed, when she heard Michael Polanyi speak, she realized that what he was saying was right, and she signed on to help him. And uh, so uh, she uh, went on to have a, a brilliant and lengthy career. I think she died at 99. She had in her gap year or her, her post, 
her first undergraduate uh, year abroad studied with Heidegger and Jaspers. She was that old. And uh, if I can grow up to write philosophy like Marjorie Green, I'd like to, because man, oh man, passion. And uh, uh, she brooks no foolishness, and that includes analytic philosophy. <laughs> so if you want to have a good read, you need to read her philosophical testament. It's just that's fantastic. Really now, just to help people again, um, uh, could you just quick, we, we, we both use this phrase, analytic philosophy. Yeah. It might be worth your while just sure. a sketch of what that word means. Well, analytic philosophy is a dominant uh, school of philosophy. Sometimes it's called Anglo-American philosophy. And uh, in the U.S., I'd say it's one of two, possibly three dominant schools, obviously with the name Anglo-American. Anglo and these English types, as y'all might know, uh, tend to, to the logical. <laughs> and and uh, so uh, this began in, in England and, and came over, over here too. And um, uh, the beginning of analytic, analytic philosophy is, is with the idea that we need to look at language and the meaning of language and all of our philosophical conundrums can be actually not solved but dissolved by uh, making them a matter of language. And so uh, language and logic and math really got foregrounded. When I was doing my PhD, I had way more logic classes than any other class. Um, so that's kind of telling, but, but what it, what the analytic method, uh, is maybe, um, most appreciated for is a, a kind of rigor, uh, in, in analysis of, of problems. However, the sad thing about it is they, they're, they're just missing so much, including, uh, a lot of the history of philosophy. So I, I think I had maybe one history of philosophy class in, in my PhD program, which, and, and I have to say, I think analytic philosophy is dry as dust. I just, it will kill a soul so fast. And I, I would agree, uh, uh, Tony, with what you said earlier, that there, I, I would think that it kind of is imbued with the kind of the anal, anal, egotistical, I would also add the word ascetic, I don't know if you know that word, uh, rejection of the humility that invites communion with reality. It's, it's very high on epistemology and very low on metaphysics. It's very anti-metaphysical, which is why I had to, it never occurred to me that it would even be philosophically legitimate to do metaphysics. So that's why I'm such a novice when it comes to thinking about reality. So does that, does that, that uh, I think that, help? that helps. I mean, um, and Polanyi, of course, was not an analytic uh, uh, philosopher. He wasn't a philosopher particularly. And I have to say historically too, analytic philosophy and philosophy of science of a certain brand were connected together. And Polanyi was never in that philosophy of science brand. So that gives a, a texture. You must have, uh, to your PhD, the fact that you came out of an analytic school, um, yeah. how on earth you managed to squeak through, but the, 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 the shadow of Marjorie Green uh, probably was <laughs> on your side and you, you're probably a daughter of Marjorie Green in spirit <laughs> that she got you out of there with your PhD. But it was this, 
you talked about the beginning of the seed of the put it together moment in that right, right. Kalanyi concept of future manifestation. What was the phrase? Future manifestation. Indeterminate, indeterminate future manifestations. Now he says it lots of different ways, but I took that phrase and called it the IFM effect okay. <laughs> because I love I love acronyms. <laughs> so you know this. Uh, I, I, the best example of it in ordinary life, I think, is when you meet somebody, and there comes this moment when you think this person might be a really good friend. So you have this sense of future possibilities. Another one would be that you might want to move to a certain city because, and people say because of all the things that you could do there. So that's a sense of future possibilities. And that kind of testifies to the three dimensionality or reality of something which for Polani, I mean nobody else talks like him but he just he just presumed this I don't even you can't even tell where he got it he just always said it that if you hit a real on a real idea you know a, a real natural law it will turn up again and again and again it will surprise you um, but the point is that at the moment of discovery all you have is a an unspecifiable sense of it. It's indeterminate. And so you can't prove it. You can't prove it at the point that you discover it. Yeah, and when you say to yourself, I think this person's going to be a good friend, uh, you can't prove that. That's right. And if you were That's asked right. to prove it, then you couldn't prove it and they would never become your friend. <laughs> they probably would walk away from you. <laughs> Which I think is an example of the, I mean, what I see about proof for instance in business is what's uh, commonly called the business case uh, in large organizations where you know a, a team or a group of people who might have a hunch or an intuition that there could be a future product or a future service have got to assert, they've got to actually ask for funds what happens is you get into this terrible catch-22 conversation we love your idea it's a great idea um, can you prove it so that we can give you some funds? Now, I want you to give me some funds so that I can prove it. That's the whole point. At the yeah. moment, by definition, yeah. it's, it's not capable of being proved. Yeah. And uh, so as a result, um, in, in what happens in business is either you don't get funds or the group perjure themselves. They pretend everything is more right. precise than it is. And yeah. That's, yeah. that's the culture of the business case which is, uh, you, know, you know, something I would invite you to, uh, to um, train your blitzkrieg mind on and blow out of the water because I think a lot of people in business would give you a big hug because they all suspect it's wrong, but they don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, well, so um, back to your question, I'll, now I'll answer it. When I got done my PhD dissertation, I was um, losing my brain to mothering at that point. I was pregnant with the second of three children. And uh, so my brain was turning to mush. But when I got to think, uh, you know, I, I would think if somebody came and wanted to have a conversation with me about epistemology, I would, that means the philosophy of knowing, I would run the other direction because I have no idea. I have no idea. And I remember that in those, uh, those days of mothering, if I had a chance to pick up Polanyi's personal knowledge and read it again, or I also had been influenced by uh, theologian John Frame, his, his work, and I would pick those two guys up and I'd read them and I'd say, is this true? 
and I had no sense that it was true. Um, but I did feel about both of them that they were responsible. They were responsible responses to my questions. And so I thought, well, my, my lingo, I tend to be a little childlike and colorful, but I would say, I'd say, well, I'll hook my dinghy to their cruise ship and navigate the harbor. <laughs> and, and so that's what I would, you know, I'd, I'd say, okay, so he's doing some responsible work. He's doing some responsible work. And I'll just kind of maybe hang on to them and follow through. And so then there came this time when I, for the first time, got to teach something like what I thought. And uh, in a, you know, a religious community where women are meant to be seen and not heard. <laughs> that came when I was, you know, pushing 50. And uh, in any case, I had my students read both of those guys. And then I watched them say, oh. <laughs> and then at the end of the semester, they said, could you write this in a book? In which I said, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> but I did. In a month, I was in, connect, in contact with an editor who actually invited me to express what I'd really like to write and then coached me through to Longing to Know, which was the book that kind of first put things together. Longing to Know is a book for people considering Christianity who have questions about how knowing works. And if I, I mean, I think obviously uh, all we can do here is put our toe in the water, but, but putting a toe in the water, you, there's a story I read in, um, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through your, your writing, you'll be pleased to know. Um, Thank you. Uh, and in a little manual for knowing, um, I think the story that probably crystallizes it for me is your story about the Star Trek and the Horta. Um, <laughs> would I be right in saying that was getting close to the to the to the kernel of, of what knowledge is? It's it's about love and it's personal. Something like that. I mean, in loving to know, which is my next book after longing to, to know, I uh, take Michael Polanyi's idea of knowing and I adopt it and adapt it or augment it to um, a thesis that uh, knowing the knower yet to be known relationship should uh, paradigmatically uh, be seen as an interpersoned relationship. So uh, it's it it's like you 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 want to invite reality to come as if it were a person. So uh, the knowing effort is almost like a, a wedding ceremony that you promise to love, honor, and obey that which you do not yet know, uh, to it to uh, make it so that reality feels safe, self-disclosing to you. And so I've gone way interpersonal. On, on that, but I will always have the Polanian component in that too. So, so the the Horta, obviously, you know, that's not a rock, Jim. It's a mother. You, know? you might, you might <laughs> you just know, quickly like, tell everybody who hasn't seen the show what that story is. I think otherwise, <laughs> can you quickly, please go ahead. Can you, can you quickly tell us? Oh, you want me? Yeah. Oh, it's one of the early uh, Star Trek episodes with. Uh, William Shatner and whoever played the irascible Leonard McCoy, Bones McCoy, the doctor. 
and uh, they're on this planet and there's this huge rock that's uh, killing people <laughs> somehow. It's called the Horda. And then uh, what, uh, you know, uh, Bones must uh, do some kind of, not Vulcan, maybe it's a Vulcan mind mill. I mean, maybe Leonard Nimoy does it, but in any case, they find out that it's pregnant. <laughs> So that just changes everything. And that's a great uh, idea about uh, the, you called it the putting together moment. I call it the OIC at moment when you have an aha moment and uh, your whole, uh, what you've been puzzling over kind of reconfigures into a fresh integrative pattern. Uh, and um, so that was and there's an aha there, but it was also an interpersonal so that you realize that this reality that is uh, puzzling you and hurting you is actually a wounded mother or a mother whose babies are being wounded. You know, that really yeah, changes. That, 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 um, uh, that story uh, resonates deeply with me. I mean, I had a... Um, hot up moment, which is, I, I found it difficult to put into words. I've tried once before at Gospel Conversations and people like it. Um, but you, I think your structure would help me articulate it better. And it was my uh, moment on the treadmill in my gymnasium. Uh, I, I began lots of mornings on the treadmill and um, I, I combined that with prayer and meditation. And this was about three or four years ago. And I was essentially asking, again, my version of these questions, how can I know you? Um, how can I know you in a way that's more seamless, um, less theoretical, um, connect, connect uh, my knowledge of you um, with me and my world? And in a sense, make you, look God, more tangible. I, I didn't use those words, but... And it was one of those moments in life where there's a shaft of light and it comes from nowhere and suddenly it's there. You know, uh, this would be very Palenyi type knowledge because I identify these moments because I can't see any trajectory in my mind. They seem to just come into my mind from nowhere and then they're there. And it's a seed that stays there and I have to then do the, the work on it. And the seed was, it was a double whammy in an instant, the seed was, think of the origin of the universe as a birth, not as physics. Not a... Not as physics. Oh. So, so don't go back to the Big Bang and think of this in terms of physics and as people normally do, a matter of science. Think of it as uh, the seed in the womb and you'll get closer to truth. Mm -hmm. So literally, Literally, it's like God said to me, think of the universe like exactly the Horta. It's pregnant. The Horta. <laughs> it's alive. And, 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 you know, I, when I was talking about this, I put a picture up uh, of a mother holding a baby. I said, if you thought about the universe through this image, how does everything change? Yeah. And that would get to, I know, the points that we can't get into now, but you'll talk about reality as a gift. It's personal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. love and, um, oh, and I've gone on to learn so much more about that as I've gone back and read classical Christian metaphysics. So I just, yes, lots to there. And, uh, um, uh, so um, the, 
the, the, the, the parallel aha I had at that moment was look inside yourself. There was a resonance because uh, intent in you is a seed. You know what that feels like. Uh, it's a, I suppose in my inarticulate way, it was very much like this indeterminate future manifestations when when I, I yeah. know that there's a love I have that's generated something and yeah. and that that shadows the intent of God generating everything. So I'm just a microcosm of this. As I give birth to things uh, and what I give birth to is personal, then follow that trajectory back to right. God the Father. So what you're Slowly. saying really resonates and thrills me. And... Well, look, we could talk forever and um, um, we, we will um, do that later on. But <laughs> as a way to finish off, I think I would love you to just put a bomb under Cartesianism and modernism. Um, uh, you know, you said something to me in the, when we first spoke about how we're all in the modern world infected and defected by, you call it, we're all baby Cartesians. Um, yeah. and this modernist project, uh, which is corrupting our thinking. So perhaps you might just snapshot that for people because I think that'll ring sure. bells for people who feel affected yeah. by it or threatened by it. Yeah, yep, yep. Well, at the beginning of uh, loving to know, I call it the defective epistemic default. So epistemic meaning having to do with knowledge, and, and we all know the word default now. And there's nothing wrong with a default. We all have defaults as part of our embodiment, but, but uh, you, can, you can have a defective one that you've inherited and you had no idea of it. So uh, as a diagnostic, I ask people, so what, what do most people say that knowledge is? And they you know, well, knowledge is information, day facts, okay? And then, then there's all these, um, things that knowledge isn't. And so I, I have something I call Esther's Daisy of Dichotomies. <laughs> so uh, yay to knowledge, boo to belief. <laughs> yay to science, boo to art. Yay to facts, boo to values. So, so the Daisy, uh, all the, the privileged members of the binaries go in the middle. They're all, so if you think of a, a prime example of knowledge, it's science, you know, that sort of thing. And, but then the marginalized pair is out on the pedal. Okay, knowledge in here, belief out there, reason in here, emotion out there, uh, science in here, art out there, public in here, private out there. And so my, it's only a diagnostic, meaning you don't have to argue that. Uh, all you need to see is, yeah, we do have a whole lot of presumptions about what knowledge is that we've never even examined. And that's your defective epistemic default. And that is what you could call modernist epistemology. And there's lots, lots more to it. But one of the things I think uh, it helps people see is, you know what, we're, no wonder we feel fragmented. Uh, and what, what if you happen to uh, oh, be a Christian and you, all you have ever heard is there's this reason-faith dichotomy, right? Or what if you happen to be an artist? Uh, or what if, I think it's gendered also, what if you happen to be a female? I also think it might have to do with color too. So, so I think that the dominant... Uh, idea of knowledge is, is a white one as opposed to, uh, you know, other parts of the world. And, um, and 
the, the, there's an interesting couple of things that aren't there, and that is personhood, and another is responsibility. So, so there's no sense of a uh, of, of responsibility that's being a, essential to, to knowing. So that's kind of how I try to help ordinary people to see that they've got a problem that they need to have some epistemological therapy to reorient. And I, it seemed evident to me I couldn't just write another epistemology textbook because the answer to an information model or mindset is not more information, right? So you have to write a book that actually would change the default, right? And that's what I see happen when people read the book, and especially if I get to talk with them through it, because sadly, a lot of people read any book in a, with a defective epistemic default mindset, you know, a knowledge is information mindset, and then, you know, I'll show up, and they won't be allowed to do that anymore. You know, so, um, so I, I feel that modernity can be seen to begin in the 1600s with Descartes' I think therefore I am and Francis Bacon's knowledge is power. There's, there's really evidence of a whole lot of jettisoning of classical metaphysics because it's impractical. And the goal is human mastery over nature, which ought to sound like rape, because it is, <laughs> right? And, and so it's, it's uh, knowledge is information, is commodifiable, it's highly pragmatic, and, 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 and utility is our, our highest goal. And it's evidently toxic, but, but for, you know, centuries we haven't seen that. I think we're now in a position where we understand some of those things, but we don't know how to fix them. We think all we can do is reject them. So some of my students look at that daisy and say, you know what? This is my father's epistemology. <laughs> and they don't, they're, they're dying. They're dying. But they don't know what the problem is, and they don't know how to fix it. So that's what I think I try to do and seems to work not that i'm utilitarian <laughs> i see well, a lot of people that are healed <laughs> well that's wonderful that's wonderful and um we certainly uh we're going to look forward to hearing more from you yeah, thank um, this, you this is a taster but also you know I, I genuinely say god bless your work and may it uh, may it um spread far and wide um and um Thank you very much for the time. Uh, we'll uh, we'll Thank you. we'll stop the official recording and um, right. but and goodbye to you all. <laughs> you know, in an intimate sort of a happy play like sort of way. You know, and and um, people need to be restored to that. So, you know, maybe we've got a defective epistemic default, but as I say in the books, we, there's a deeper default, you know, thinking back to what Lewis says about Aslan, you know, and the deep magic from the dawn of, before the dawn of time, you know, there's a deeper epistemic default called humanness. And, and uh, we need to be restored to that. But to be restored to that, you gotta, uh, address some stupidities <laughs> yeah I love your sense that that restoration is to a childhood yeah and we're restored to ourselves yeah